Hello, and welcome to Champagne and Murder, please. I am your host, Brittany. I hope you all are doing well today. I'm sorry this episode is so late this morning. I had to work this morning, and I didn't have time to record beforehand. Uh, So sorry about that. Uh, But a big, huge shout-out to my friend Kim and her baby for coming over and watching my youngest so I could go to work this morning. Uh, I really appreciate her. She brought me a pumpkin spice frappuccino and a java chip from Starbucks. I was very surprised by that, and I'm very grateful for that because I absolutely needed the coffee this morning and now this afternoon. Um, So I just wanted to say a big thank you to her for that. Um, Welcome to September. September 1st as I'm recording this. I hope everybody has a safe and happy Labor Day this coming Labor Day and I hope you guys get to enjoy some time off and relax with friends and family. Pretend like summer is still going even though meteorologically it is fall but not until the end of September is it really fall for us. So anyway I hope you guys enjoy your last remnants of summer unofficially. And I hope you guys are ready for a good story. This one's going to be a long one. It is about Anne Boleyn. Today we are talking about Miss Anne Boleyn. There's a lot of information out there about her and a lot of different interpretations of her story through movies and other things. Um, I'm going to give you just what I found out and hope that you guys enjoy it. Um, she is one of the 13 most famous ghosts of the Tower of London, so she's our number two ghost that we're covering. Um, so let's get started. Anne Boleyn's date of birth is unknown. She was the daughter of Thomas Boleyn, later Earl of Wiltshire and Earl of Ormond, and his wife Elizabeth Howard. And as with Anne, it is unclear when her two siblings were born, but it seems clear that her sister Mary was older than Anne. Thomas Boleyn wrote in the 1530s that his children were born before the death of his father, William, in 1505. The debate around Anne's birthday focuses on two key dates, 1501 and 1507. Eric Ives, a British historian and legal expert, advocates for the 1501 date, while Retha Warnick, an American scholar who also wrote a biography of Anne, prefers the 1507 date. A key piece of evidence is a letter Anne wrote in French to her father, who was still in England, while Anne was completing her education at Michelin. I'm pretty sure that's how you say it. Not sure. Let me know. In what is now Belgium. Either way, she was born in the 1500s. Makes no real difference to me. Just 1500s. Early. Got it. (laughs) Anne's paternal ancestor, Geoffrey Boleyn, or Geoffrey, (laughs) if you know, you know had been a mercer and wool merchant before he became Lord Mayor. The Boleyn family originally came from Blicking in Norfolk. Anne's relatives included the Howards, who were one of the preeminent families in England. Her ancestors also included King Edward I of England, and according to Eric Ives, she was clearly more no- of no- more noble birth than Jane Seymour and Catherine Parr, two of King Henry VIII's other wives. The actual spelling of the name Bolin is variable, which was common at the time. Sometimes it was written as B-O-L-E-Y-N or B-U-L-L-E-N, which explains the bull's head that form the part 
of the family's coat of arms. So there's the bull on their coat of arms because of that. Anne's education was a tip was typical for a woman of her class. In 1513, she had been invited to join the classroom of Margaret of Austria. Her academic education was limited to arithmetic, her own family genealogy, grammar, history, reading, spelling, and writing. She also honed her domestic skills, such as dancing, embroidery, good manners, household management, music, needlework, and singing. Anne also learned to play the games of the time, like cards, chess, and dice. She was also taught archery, falconry, horseback riding, and hunting. Girl sounds like she was busy. While Anne's father, Thomas, continued his diplomatic career under Henry VIII in Europe, his charm won him many admirers, including Margaret of Austria, who was the daughter of Maximilian I, Holy Roman Emperor. And during this time, Margaret ruled the Netherlands on behalf of her nephew, Charles, and she was so impressed with Thomas that she offered Anne a place in her household. So that is how she came to be the maid of honor to Margaret of Austria for seven years. Normally, a girl would have to have been at least 12 years old to have such an honor bestowed upon them, but Anne was probably younger than that. Margaret called her La Petite Boulin. Anne's good manners and studiousness made a good impression on the whole of the Netherlands, Margaret reported that Anne was well-spoken and pleasant for her young age. Margaret told Thomas that his daughter was, quote, so presentable and pleasant, considering her youthful age, that I am more beholden to you for sending her to me than you to me, end quote. Anne stayed at the court of Savoy in Michelin from spring 1513 until after her father arranged for her to attend King Henry VIII's sister Mary, who was going to be marrying Louis Twelfth of France in October 1514. Anne was made the maid of honor to Queen Mary when she arrived in France, and then to Mary's 15-year-old stepdaughter, Queen Claude, who she stayed with for another seven years. While in the Queen's household, she finished her study of French, and she grew interested in art, fashion, illuminated manuscripts, literature, music, poetry, and religious philosophy. It is said that she, quote, owes her evangelicalism to France, end quote. She studied the reformist books and Jacques Lefebvre's, I have no idea how to say that. Um, I tried looking it up before, still couldn't figure it out. Translations into French of the Bible and the Pauline epistles, which are the 13 books of the New Testament attributed to Paul the Apostle. She was also immersed in French culture, dance, etiquette, literature, music, and poetry, but most of all, she learned to flirt and learned about courtly love. Not Courtney love, courtly love. <laughs> Although most of the knowledge of Anne's experiences in French court is conjecture, it is suggested that she was likely to have made the acquaintance of King Francis I's sister, Margaret de Navarre, a patron of the humanist and reformers. Margaret was also an author in her own right. Her works included elements of Christian mysticism and reform that verged on heresy. But Margaret was protected by her status as the French king's beloved sister. Margaret and her circle may have been the cause of Anne's interest in religious reform, as well as in poetry and literature. And the all-around education Anne received in France proved itself later in life. She inspired many new trends among the ladies and the courtiers of England. It could have been instrumental in pressing their king toward England's break with the church, too. So, there's that. 
the author of a contemporary poem about Catherine of Aragon, William Forrest, complimented Anne's passing excellent skill as a dancer. Here, he wrote, was a fresh young damsel that could trip and go, so she must have been really able to bust a move on the floor. While Anne was at Henry's court, she was recalled to be married to her Irish cousin, James Butler, who was a young man, though several years older than Anne, who was living at the English court. The marriage proposed was supposed to settle a dispute over the title and estates of the Earldom of Ormond. The seventh earl had died in 1515, leaving his daughters Margaret Boleyn and Anne St. Ledger as co-heiresses, while in Ireland the great-great-grandson of the third earl, Sir Piers Butler, was contesting the will and he claimed the earldom for himself. He already owned Kilkenny Castle, which was the earl's ancestral seat. Thomas Boleyn believed the title belonged to him since he was the son of the eldest daughter and he protested to his brother-in-law, who happened to be the Duke of Norfolk, who then in turn spoke to the king about the matter. Henry was worried that this dispute would ignite a civil war in Ireland. He tried to resolve the matter by arranging an alliance between Piers's son, James, and Miss Anne Boleyn. And with her Ormond dowry, this union would end the dispute. But... As luck would have it, the plan ended in failure, probably because Thomas was wanting a better, grander marriage arrangement for his daughter, or because he wanted the titles for himself. Probably the latter. But whatever the true motivations, the marriage talks came to an abrupt halt. James Butler would later marry Lady Joan Fitzgerald, daughter and heiress of James Fitzgerald, who is the 10th Earl of Desmond and Amy O'Brien. Anne's older sister Mary had been recalled from France in later, 1519, to end her affairs with the French king and his courtiers. She then married William Carey, who was a minor noble in 1520. Even the king attended the ceremony. Soon after that, though, Mary became the king's mistress. Although historians dispute that King Henry VIII is the father of one or even two of the children Mary had during Mary and William's marriage, Henry did not acknowledge either child, but he did recognize his illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy. By the new year, 1522, Anne had gained a position at the king's royal court as a lady-in-waiting to Queen Catherine. She made her public court debut at an event at the Chateau Vert, Greencastle, in a pageant in honor of the imperial ambassadors on March 4, 1522. She played the part of perseverance in the spectacle. All the participants wore white satin gowns that were embroidered with gold thread, and she was able to quickly establish herself as one of the most stylish and accomplished women at the court, and it didn't take long before all the young men were competing for her hand. Go, girl, go. Retha Warnick wrote that Anne was, quote, the perfect woman courtier. Her carriage was graceful, and her French clothes were pleasing and stylish. She danced with ease, had a pleasant singing voice, played the lute and several other musical instruments as well, and spoke French fluently. A remarkable, intelligent, quick-witted young noblewoman that first drew people into the conversation with her and then amused and entertained them. In short, her energy and vitality made her the center of attention in any social gathering, end quote. And of course, Anne reveled in the attention she received from her many, many admirers. Anne was courted by Henry Percy, the son of the Earl of Northumberland, and entered into a secret betrothal with him. George Cavendish, Cavendish, not sure how you say it, 
where the emphasis goes, who as Thomas Woolsey's gentleman usher maintained that the two had not been lovers. The secret romance was broken off when Percy's father refused to, su- to support the engagement, and Woolsey, sticking his nose in everything, rejected the match for several reasons. And according to Cavendish, Anne was then sent from court and stayed with her family in the country in their countryside estates, but for how long, nobody actually really knows. But when she did return to the court, she was once again in the service of the queen. Percy was then married off to Lady Mary Talbot, who... He had been betrothed to since he was a kid, which seems really gross to me, but okay. Before she married King Henry VIII, Anne had become friends with Sir Thomas Wyatt, who happened to be one of the greatest poets of the Tudor era. So Wyatt was actually married to Elizabeth Cobham, and by many accounts, she was not a wife that Wyatt had chosen. And in 1525, Wyatt charged Elizabeth with adultery, and he had separated from her. And this is when most historians believe that it was this it was this same year that Wyatt's interest in Anne intensified. In 1532, Wyatt even went with the couple to Calais. So he went with the king and Anne. It wasn't until 1526 that Henry became completely enamored of Anne and he started to pursue her. But Anne was a skilled player in the game of courtly love, which was often played in the antechambers. This may have been how she had caught Henry's eye, because he, too, was an experienced player. Anne would refuse Henry's advances and also refuse to become his mistress, and would often leave court and stay at Hever Castle. Within a year, Henry proposed to Anne, and she accepted. But, wait, isn't Henry married? Why, yes, yes he is. Perhaps he forgot. Both Henry and Anne thought that Henry could get his current marriage annulled within a couple of months, Henry's love letters to Anne suggest that their love affair remained unconsummated for much of their seven-year courtship. It's probable that Henry had thought of an annulment a lot sooner than when he and Anne started courting each other, since he wanted a male heir to secure the Tudor claim to the throne. Because before Henry VII ascended to the throne, England was in the middle of a civil war over rival claims to the throne. Henry wanted to avoid a similar uncertainty over the succession, and to do that, he needed a son. Catherine had not given him any sons. All of her children had died in infancy, except for their daughter Mary. Catherine had originally come to England to be Henry's brother's wife. His name was Arthur. But Arthur died shortly after they were married. But since Spain and England still wanted an alliance, Pope Julius II granted a special dispensation for Henry to marry Catherine on the grounds that, quote, perchance, end quote, she was still a virgin. In 1509, Henry and Catherine were married, but Henry eventually became dubious about the marriage being valid. He claimed that Catherine's inability to produce a living son was a sign that God himself was displeased, because I'm sure... If God's just sitting up there, he's looking down going, oh, Henry, I don't know about this. Don't think he's got anything better to do? You think you're that important? Sure. Because, obviously, women are the only players in the baby-making game. Right. Anyway, Henry's feelings for Anne and her refusal to become his mistress most likely contributed to Henry's decision that no pope had the right to overrule the Bible. In Henry's mind... He had been living in sin with Catherine for all those years, though Catherine was adamant that her marriage to Arthur had never been consummated. 
and as for Mary, she would be considered illegitimate if Henry's assumptions were actually true. And this new pope, Clement VII, would have to admit that the previous pope made a mistake and he would have to annul the marriage of Henry and Catherine. Henry's quest to annul his marriage became known as the, quote, king's great matter, end quote. Anne, being the clever girl she is, was, saw an opportunity in Henry's infatuation with her and the convenient moral quandary over his marriage. She decided that she would give in to Henry's embraces only as his acknowledged queen. She started taking her place by his side in policy and state, but she remained out of his bed. Historians and scholars have varying opinions on how dedicated to Reformation Anne really was, and how much was actually just her personal ambition, and how much she had to do with Henry defying papal power. Ives, Maria Dowling, and Joseph S. Block from California State Polytechnic University are among those who believe that Anne was, quote, a devout evangelical eager for reform, end quote, whereas Warnick or Warnicky and George Bernard think that her religious beliefs were conventional. There is some anecdotal evidence related to biographer George Wyatt by her former lady-in-waiting Anne Gainsford that Anne brought a heretical pamphlet to Henry's attention, perhaps Tyndale's The Obedience of a Christian Man, or one by Simon Fish called A Supplication for the Beggars, which cried out to monarchs to reign in the evil excesses of the Catholic Church. Anne was sympathetic to those seeking future reformation of the church, and she even protected scholars working on English translations of the scriptures. According to Dowling, quote, Anne tried to educate her waiting women in scriptural piety, end quote, and is believed to have reproved her cousin Mary Shelton for, quote, having idle poesies written in her prayer book, end quote. In 1528, the sweating sickness broke out. In, in London, the mortality rate was high, and the court was dismissed. Henry left London and frequently changed his location, as if he's trying to outrun it. Anne retreated to Hever Castle, but she came down with the sweating sickness anyway. Her brother-in-law, William Carey, died, and Henry sent his own personal physician to Hever Castle to take care of Anne. And she recovered shortly thereafter. Imagine being that doctor and Henry tells you, go make his girlfriend better, the guy who rules everything and was known to have a hot temper. If Anne dies, even if it's not your fault, it's still your fault. I'd be like, um, so I'm going to retire now. Uh, find somebody else to take care of Anne. Thanks so much. <laughs> After all the crazy of the sweating sickness had passed, Henry was consumed with securing an annulment from Catherine. He set his hopes on a direct appeal to the Holy See. That's S-E-E, not S-E-A. Acting independently from Wolsey, who had no idea of Henry's plans when it came to Anne. In 1527, the king's secretary, William Knight, was sent to see Pope Clement VII to sue for the annulment of Henry and Catherine's marriage on the grounds that the dispensing bull of Julius II, permitting him to marry Catherine, had been obtained under false pretenses. Henry also petitioned that in the event he became free of Catherine, he wanted dispensation to marry any woman, even in the first degree of affinity, whether the affinity was contracted by lawful or unlawful connection, which is obviously referring to Anne. So I want to be able to marry whoever I want, whether it's lawful or unlawful, don't care. At this time, Cope, Pope, Cope, Pope Clement VII was a prisoner of Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor. As a result of 
the sack of Rome in May of 1527, so William Knight had some difficulty getting to the Pope. In the end, though, he returned to Henry with a conditional dispensation, which Wolsey said was technically insufficient for their purposes. So now, Henry had no choice except to put his great matter fully into Wolsey's hands. Wolsey went as far as to convene an ecclesiastical court in England with a special emissary, Lorenzo Campeggio, to decide the matter. But Clement had not given his deputy the power to make an actual decision, making the entire thing a circus act to placate the king. Clement was still a hostage of Charles, and Charles was loyal to his aunt, who was Catherine of Aragon. The Pope forbade Henry to enter into another marriage contract until a decision was made in Rome, not England. Henry was convinced that Wolsey's loyalties laid with the Pope and not with him and Anne, and along with his many enemies, it ensures his dismissal from his public office in 1529. Cavendish, or however you want to say it, Wolsey's chamberlain, recorded that servants waiting on the king and Anne at dinner in 1529 in Grafton heard Anne say that the dishonor Wolsey had brought upon the realm would have cost any other Englishman his head. Henry replied, quote, why then I perceive you are not the cardinal's friend, end quote. Henry finally agreed to arrest Wolsey on the grounds of premunire, which is the offense of asserting or maintaining papal jurisdiction in England. In 1530, Wolsey died from an illness which saved him from being executed for treason. In 1531, Catherine was banished from the court and her rooms were given to Anne. Public support, however, remained in Catherine's favor. One evening in the autumn of 1531, Anne was having dinner at a manor house on the River Thames and was almost captured by an angry mob of women. But Anne managed to escape by boat. The Archbishop of Canterbury, William Warham, died in 1532, and the Bolin family chaplain, Thomas Cranmer, was appointed Archbishop with papal approval. In 1532, Thomas Cromwell brought a number of acts before the Parliament, which included the supplication against the ordinaries and submission of the clergy, which recognized royal supremacy over the church, and it finalized England's break with Rome. Following this, Thomas More resigned as chancellor and left Cromwell as Henry's chief minister. Even before she was married to Henry, Anne was able to grant petitions, receive diplomats, and give patronage and she had an influence over Henry to plead the cause of foreign diplomats. During this period, Anne played a huge role in England's international position by securing an alliance with France. She had an excellent rapport with the French ambassador Giles de la Palmieri. In the winter of 1532, Anne and Henry attended a meeting with the French king in Calais, at which Henry hoped to enlist the support of Francis I for his intended marriage to Anne. On September 1st, 1532, Henry granted her the Marquisette of Pembroke, which was an appropriate title and rank of peer or peeress for a future queen. Henry performed the ceremony himself. Anne's family greatly profited from the relationship as well. Her father, Viscount Rochford, was now the Earl of Wiltshire. Henry also Wiltshire, sorry. Henry also made arrangements with Anne's Irish cousin, making him the Earl of Ormond. And at the magnificent banquet to celebrate her father's elevation and rank, Anne took precedence over the Duchess of Suffolk and Norfolk, seated in the place of honor beside the king that was usually occupied by the queen. 
Thanks to Anne's intervention, her widowed sister Mary received an annual pension of 100 pounds. But later, when Mary remarried, Anne took that back. She's like, you're good now. You don't need this. Mary's son, Henry Carey, was educated at the prestigious Brigitine nunnery of Sion Abbey. Anne also arranged for Nicholas Bourbon, who was exiled from France for his support for religious reform, to be Henry's tutor. Little Henry, not Henry the King. The conference in Calais was a political triumph. But even though the French government gave implicit support for Henry's marriage to Anne, Francis I had a private conference with Anne, and the French king maintained alliances with the Pope that he could not defy. After returning from Dover, Henry and Anne were married in a secret ceremony on November 14, 1532. Shortly after that, she became pregnant, and since the secret ceremony was considered unlawful, they had a second wedding service also private, in accordance with the precedents established in the royal book. It took place in London on January 25, 1533. Now, events started to begin at a more quick pace here. May 23, 1533, Cranmer sat in judgment at a special court convened at Dunstable Priory to rule on the validity of Henry's marriage to Catherine. He declared their marriage null and void, and five days later, on May 28th, Happy birthday to my daughter. 1533, Cranmer declared the marriage of Henry and Anne to be good and valid. Nice having people in your pocket like that, I guess. Bishop John Fisher refused to acknowledge Henry's marriage to Anne. Catherine was formally stripped of her title as queen, and Anne was crowned queen consort on June 1st, 1533, in a magnificent ceremony at Westminster Abbey, with a banquet after the ceremony. She was the last queen consort of England to be crowned separately from her husband. Unlike the other queens, Anne was crowned with St. Edward's crown, which had previously been used to crown only monarchs. Historian Alice Hunt suggests that this was done because of Anne's pregnancy. It was clearly visible at this point, and the child was assumed to be male. But everybody knows what happens when you assume. The day before the ceremony, Anne had been had taken part in an elaborate procession through the streets of London, seated in a litter of, quote, white cloth of gold, end quote, that rested on two palfreys, which are horses, clothed to the ground in white damask, while the barons of the Cinque Ports held a canopy of cloth gold above her head, and in accordance with tradition, she wore white, and on her head she wore a gold coronet beneath her, beneath which her long, dark hair hung down freely. The response from the public was lukewarm at best. Like, they just weren't having it. They're like, bitch, get out of here. In the meantime, the House of Commons had forbidden all appeals to Rome and exacted penalties against all who introduced papal bills into England. It was only then that Pope Clement at last took the step of announcing a provisional excommunication of Henry and Cranmer. He also condemned Henry's marriage to Anne. And in March 1534, he declared the marriage to Catherine legal and again ordered Henry to return to her. Henry then required his subjects to swear an oath attached to the First Succession Act, which was an act that rejected papal authority in legal matters and recognized Anne Boleyn as the queen. Those who refused, like Sir Thomas More and John Fisher, were sent to the Tower of London. In late 1534, the Parliament declared Henry the, quote, only supreme head on earth of the Church of England, end quote. So now the Church of England was under Henry's complete control and not Rome's. May 14, 1534, in one of the first official acts protecting Protestant reformers, Anne wrote a letter to Thomas Cromwell seeking his help in ensuring that English merchant, 
named an English merchant named Richard Herman be reinstated as a member of the Merchant Adventurers in Antwerp, and that he no longer be persecuted simply because he helped in, quote, setting forth a New Testament in English, end quote, both before and after her coronation, and protected and promoted evangelicals and those who wished to study the scriptures of William Tyndale. She had a decisive role in influencing the Protestant reformer Matthew Parker to attend court as her chaplain, and before her death, she entrusted her daughter to Parker's care. After she was crowned, Anne settled into a quiet routine at Greenwich Palace to prepare for the birth of her baby. The baby girl was born slightly premature on September 7, 1533. She was named Elizabeth, most likely to honor either one or both Anne and Henry's mothers, but the birth of a daughter was a blow to her family who confidently had expected a baby boy. Remember what I said, assuming? Ass. You. Me. (laughs) All of us. So, all but one of the royal physicians and astrologers had predicted a son, and the French king had been asked to be the baby's godfather. Now, all the letters they had prepared announcing a prince had to be changed to read princess. The traditional jousting tournament was then canceled since the baby was not a boy. Rude, I want a party too. Infant Princess Elizabeth was given a spectacular christening, but Anne was afraid that Catherine's daughter Mary, who was now stripped of her title and labeled a bastard, posed a threat to Elizabeth's position. In response, Henry separated Mary from her servants and sent Elizabeth to Hatfield House, where she would live with her own sizable staff of servants, and the country air was thought to benefit her health. Anne was a frequent frequent visitor at Hatfield House. Anne had a larger staff of servants than Catherine did. She had more than 250 servants that attended her personal needs. Dude, I could do it with one assistant. Like, that would be enough for me. But I'm not that picky, I guess. She had priests to stable boys and more than 60 maids of honor who served her and accompanied her to social events. She had several priests who acted as her confessors, chaplains, and religious advisors, one of whom was Matthew Parker, who went on to become one of the chief architects of the Anglican thought during the reign of Anne's daughter, Elizabeth I. Anne and Henry enjoyed a reasonably happy marriage with periods of calm and affection. Anne's sharp intelligence, political acumen, and forward manners, which were desirable in a mistress, were, at the time, unacceptable in a wife. Rude, but okay. But I feel like Henry had to know what he was getting into after seven years of quote-unquote dating Anne. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. She was reported to have spoken to her uncle in words that, quote, shouldn't be used on a dog, end quote. Well, what did he do first? After a stillbirth or a miscarriage around Christmas time, 1534, Henry was discussing with Cranmer and Cromwell the possibility of divorcing Anne without returning to Catherine. But nothing came of the discussion as the couple reconciled and spent the summer of 1535 on progress. And by October, Anne was pregnant again. Anne presided over the court and she spent lavishly on gowns, jewels, headdresses, ostrich feather fans, riding equipment, furniture, and upholstery maintaining the ostentatious display that was required of her status. She renovated numerous palaces to suit her and Henry's extravagant tastes. Her motto was, quote-unquote, the most happy, and she chose a white falcon as her personal device. So, like, her logo, her symbol. Anne was being blamed for Henry's tyranny and was called by some the king's whore or a naughty pike, which is a sex worker, but the P word of that. So rude. 
The public's end of her unapproving opinion of her got worse when she couldn't produce a living son, and it sank even lower after the executions of her enemies, Moore and Fisher. January 8, 1536, news came of Catherine of Aragon's death. Henry and Anne were overjoyed. Gross. The following day, Henry wore the color yellow, which is a symbol of joy and celebration in England, but one of mourning in Spain. He was in yellow head to toe, and he celebrated Catherine's death with festivities. Again, gross. With Catherine gone, Anne tried to make peace with her daughter Mary, but Mary rebuffed Anne's attention. Perhaps because of the rumors circulating that Catherine had been poisoned by Henry and Anne. These rumors began after the discovery during her embalming that Catherine's heart was blackened. Modern medical experts are in agreement that this was not a result of poisoning, but cancer of the heart, which was an extremely rare condition that was definitely not understood at the time. They were just like, black heart, poison, they did it. Pregnant again, Queen Anne was well aware of the dangers if she didn't give birth to a son. With Catherine gone, Henry would be free to marry without any taint of illegality. At this time, Henry was pursuing one of Anne's maids of honor, Jane Seymour, who was actually one of Anne's cousins. And he allegedly gave her a locket that contained a miniature portrait of himself. Very subtle, Henry. Very. While she was wearing this locket in Anne's presence, she began to open and close it. Anne responded by ripping the locket off Jane's neck with such force that her fingers were bleeding. So, Mama's pissed. Later that month, Henry was unhorsed in a tournament and knocked unconscious for two hours, an incident Anne blames for her miscarriage that happened five days later. But another incident leading to the miscarriage, according to Anne, was upon entering a room, Anne saw Jane sitting on Henry's lap and Anne flew into a blind rage. Whatever the reason, on the day Catherine was buried at Peterborough Alley, Anne miscarried her baby, which according to the imperial ambassador Eustace Chapuis, she had born for about three and a half months and which, quote-unquote, seemed to be a male child. Chapuis's opinion was that this loss was the beginning of the end of the royal marriage. Given that Henry was desperate for a son, the sequence of Anne's pregnancies attracted much interest. Mike Ashley speculated that Anne had borne two stillborn children after Elizabeth was born and before the son she miscarried in 1536. Gynecologist John Dewhurst studied the sequence of the birth of Elizabeth in September 1533 and the series of reported miscarriages that followed, including the miscarriage of the male child of almost four months gestation. In January 1536, and he suggests that instead of a series of miscarriages, Anne was actually experiencing pseudocyces, a, con a condition occurring in women desperate to prove their fertility. As Anne was recovering from her latest miscarriage, Henry declared that he had been seduced into the marriage by means of sortilages, which is a French term that indicates deception or spells. His newest favorite lady, Jane Seymour, was quickly moved into the royal quarters at Greenwich, where Jane's brother Edward and his wife moved in with her for propriety's sake. This happened after Anne's brother George was refused the prestigious honor of the Order of the Garter, and it was given to Sir Nicholas Carew. Anne's biographer, Eric Ives, believes that Anne, Anne's fall and execution were mostly engineered by her one-time ally, Thomas Cromwell. Conversations between Chapuis and Cromwell thereafter indicate Cromwell as the instigator of the plot to remove Anne. There is evidence in the Spanish Chronicle, and through letters written from Chapuis to Charles V, Anne had argued with Cromwell over the redistribution of the church's wealth and over foreign policy. 
She wanted the money to go to charitable and educational institutions favoring a French alliance. Cromwell, on the other hand, preferred an imperial alliance and insisted on filling the king's depleted accounts. For these reasons, Ives suggests Anne Boleyn had become a major threat to Thomas Cromwell. Now, Cromwell's biographer, John Schofield, Schofield, on the other hand, contends that there was no power struggle between Anne and Cromwell and that not a trace can be found of Cromwellian conspiracy against Anne. Cromwell became involved in the royal marital drama only when Henry ordered him into the case. Cromwell did not manufacture the accusations of adultery, though he and other officials used these accusations to bolster Henry's case against Anne. Such a bold attempt by Cromwell, given the limited evidence, he could have risked his office and even his life. Henry issued crucial instructions. His officials, including Cromwell, carried them out. The result, by modern legal standards, was a travesty. However, the rules of the time were not bent in order to assure a conviction. They had no need to mess with the rules because they already guaranteed the desired result since the law at the time was an engine of state, not a mechanism for justice. Towards the end of April, a Flemish musician in Anne's service named Mark Smeaton was arrested. Initially, he denied being the Queen's lover, but later he confessed, most likely after being tortured or promised freedom. Another courtier named Sir Henry Norris was then arrested on May Day, but being that he was an aristocrat, he couldn't be tortured. Well, there are rules. Prior to his arrest, he was treated kindly by the king, who offered him his own horse to use on the May Day festivities. It is thought likely that during the festivities, the king was notified of Smeaton's confession, and shortly thereafter, he, the alleged conspirators were arrested upon the king's orders. Norris denied his guilt and swore that Queen Anne was innocent, but one of the most damaging pieces of evidence was a conversation overheard with Anne at the end of April, where she had accused him of coming often to her chambers not to pay court to her lady-in-waiting Madge Shelton, but to her. Sir Francis Weston had, was arrested two days later on the same charge as Sir, was Sir William Barreton, a groom of the King's Privy Chamber. Sir Thomas Wyatt, the poet and friend of Anne's who alleged, was allegedly infatuated with her before her marriage to the King, was also arrested for the same charge and was imprisoned, but then he was released, most likely due to his or his family's relationship with Cromwell. Sir Richard Page was also accused of having a sexual relationship with Anne, but he was acquitted of all charges after a further investigation could not implicate him with Anne. Sorry, there's a cricket. It's really starting to bother me. The final man accused was Anne's brother, George. He was arrested on charges of incest and treason. He was accused of two incidents of incest, November 1535 at Whitehall and the following month at Eltham. Eltham. I'm not sure how to say that one. May 2nd, 1536, Anne was arrested and taken to the Tower of London by barge. Anne may have entered through the court gate in the Byward Tower rather than the Traitor's Gate. In the tower she collapsed, demanding to know the location of her father and quote-unquote sweet brother, as well as what the charges were against her. In his what is reputed to be her last letter to Henry, dated May 6th, she wrote, Sir, your grace's displeasure and my imprisonment are things so strange unto me as to what to write, or what to excuse. I am altogether ignorant, whereas you send unto me, willing me to confess a truth and so obtain your favor, by such a one whom you know to be my ancient professed enemy. I no sooner received this message by him than I rightly conceived your meaning. 
And if, as you say, confessing a truth indeed may procure my safety, I shall, with all the willingness and duty, perform your demand. But then she goes on to say, Don't imagine that your poor wife will ever be brought to acknowledge a fault, because there isn't one. And the letter goes on and on and on. And it gets to the end. It says, If I ever found favor in your sight, if I ever the name of Anne Boleyn hath been pleasing in your ears, then let me obtain this request, and I will so leave to trouble your grace any further. With mine earnest prayers to thy to the Trinity, to have your grace in his good keeping, and to direct you in all your actions. From my doleful prison in the tower, this 6th of May, your most loyal and ever faithful wife, Anne Boleyn. Four of the accused men were tried in Westminster on May 12, 1536. Weston, Brereton, and Norris publicly maintained their innocence, and Smeaton alone supported the crown by pleading guilty. Three days later, Anne and George were separately tried in the Tower of London before a jury of 27 peers. Anne was accused of adultery, incest, and high treason. The Treason Act of Edward III, adultery on the part of a queen, was a form of treason itself, for which the penalty was hanging, drawing, and quartering for a man, and burning alive for a woman. But the accusations, and especially that of incestuous adultery, were also designed to impugn her moral character. The other form of treason she was accused of was that of plotting the king's death. I bet she had time for that. With all of her lovers, so that she might later marry Norris. Anne's one-time betrothed Henry Percy sat on the jury that unanimously found Anne guilty. Ouch, that had to sting. But when the verdict was read aloud to the court, Percy collapsed and had to be carried out of the courtroom. He died eight months later. The accused were found guilty and sentenced to death. George Boleyn and the other accused men were executed on May 17, 1536. William Kingston, the constable of the tower, reported that Anne seemed very happy and ready to be done with her life. Henry commuted Anne's sentence from burning alive to beheading, and rather than have a queen beheaded with a common axe, he brought in an expert swordsman from St. Omer in France to perform Anne's execution. Well, that was nice of him. On the morning of May 19th, Kingston wrote, this morning she sent for me, that I might be with her at such time as she received the good Lord. To the intent I should hear her speak as touching her innocency always to be clear. And in the writing of this she sent for me, and at my coming she said, Mr. Kingston, I hear I shall not die afore noon, and I am very sorry, therefore, for I thought to be dead by this time and past my pain. I told her it should be no pain, it was so little, and then she said, I heard say the executioner was very good, and I have a little neck. And then put her hands about it, laughing heartily. I have seen many men and also women executed, and that they have been in great sorrow, and to my knowledge this lady has much joy in death. Sir, her almoner is continually with her, and had been since two o'clock after midnight. Shortly before dawn, Anne called Kingston to her mass with her, and she sw and swore in his presence on the eternal salvation of her soul, upon the holy sacraments, that she had never been unfaithful to Henry. On Friday morning, May 19th, Anne was taken to the scaffold that had been erected on the north side of the White Tower. She was wearing a red petticoat under a loose, dark gray gown of damask trimmed in fur and a mantle of ermine. She was accompanied by two of her female attendants and made her final walk from the queen's house to the scaffold, and she showed a devilish spirit and looked as gay as if she were not going to die. 
Anne climbed the steps of the scaffold and gave a short speech to the crowd. A secretary to the French ambassador, Antony de Castelnau, I'm not sure how you say that one. He was in London in May 1536, and he witnessed Anne's trial and execution. Two weeks after her death, he, de Carl composed a 1,318-line poem, which provides a moving account of Anne's last words and their effect on the crowd. So an excerpt from that says, She gracefully addressed the people from the scaffold with a voice somewhat overcome by weakness, but which gathered strength as she went on. She begged her hearers to forgive her if she had not used them all with becoming gentleness, and asked for their prayers. It was needless, she said, to relate why she was there, but she prayed the judge of all the world to have compassion on those who had condemned her, and she begged them to pray for the king in whom she had always found great kindness, fear of God, and love of his subjects. The spectators could not refrain from tears. It's thought that Anne avoided criticizing Henry to save her daughter Elizabeth and her family from further consequences. But even under such extreme pressure, Anne maintained her innocence and her appeal to those who might meddle of my cause. The ermine mantle was removed and Anne took off her headdress. She tucked her hair under a coif. After she bid a tearful farewell to her ladies and a request for prayers, she knelt down and one of her ladies tied a blindfold over her eyes. She knelt upright in the French style of beheadings. Her final prayer was just her continually repeating, quote, Jesus, receive my soul. O Lord God, have pity on my soul, end quote. All it took was one swing of the sword and Anne was gone. Her death was witnessed by Cromwell, Charles Brandon, the king's illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy, the Lord Mayor of London, as well as aldermen, sheriffs, and representatives of the various craft guilds. Most of the king's council was also present. Cranmer, who was at Lambeth Palace, was reported to have broken down in tears after telling Alexander Ailes, quote, She who has been the queen of England on earth will today become a queen in heaven, end quote. When the charges were first brought against Anne, Cranmer expressed his disbelief to Henry, and he believed that, quote, she should not be culpable, end quote. Cranmer felt he was vulnerable due to his closeness with the queen. On the night before the execution, he declared Henry's marriage to Anne to have been void, like Catherine's before her. He didn't make any actual attempt to save Anne, although some sources record that he had prepared for her death by hearing her last private confession of sins, in which she reinstated her innocence before God. On the day of her death, a Scottish friend found Cranmer weeping uncontrollably in his London gardens, saying he was sure that Anne had gone now to heaven. Within days of Boleyn's, ex- Boleyn's execution, Henry VIII and Jane Seymour were formally wed. Glad he went on with his life. Henry and Anne's daughter, Elizabeth I, would later emerge as one of England's most revered queens. Anne was then buried in an unmarked grave in the chapel of St. Peter at Vincula. Her skeleton was identified during renovations of the chapel in 1876 during the reign of Queen Victoria, and Anne's grave is now identified on the marble floor. A number of people have claimed to see Anne's ghost at Hever Castle, Licking Hall, Sale Church, and the Tower of London, and Marwell Hall. One account of her being seen was given by a paranormal researcher named Hans Holzer, or Han Holzer. In 1864, Captain J.D. Dundas of the 60th Rifles Regiment was billeted in the Tower of London. 
As he was looking out his window, he noticed a guard below in the courtyard, and in front of the lodgings where Anne had been imprisoned, behaving strangely. He appeared to be challenging something, which to Dundas, quote, looked like a whitish female figure sliding towards the soldier, end quote. The guard charged right through the figure with his bayonet, and then he fainted. Only the captain's testimony and corroboration at the court-martial saved the guard from a lengthy prison sentence for having fainted while he was on duty. Poor guy. Sees a ghost and almost gets court-martialed for it? That's not fair. Perhaps the most spectacular ghost story relating to Anne is that of a captain of the guard who saw a light flickering in the locked chapel royal late one night. He tried to uncover the source of the light by climbing up a ladder and was met with an unbelievable scene unfolding inside. A procession of knights and ladies dressed in ancient costumes pacing the chapel. Their leader, an elegant female whose face he could not see but whose figure resembled that of Anne Boleyn's in portraits he had seen. The procession later disappears. Anne's ghost is said to appear each Christmas at Hever Castle, which was her childhood home. She is said to manifest beneath the great oak tree where Anne and Henry courted. Her ghost also walks across the bridge which crosses the river Eden on the castle grounds. And Windsor Castle is the largest and oldest occupied castle in the world, and she has been seen standing at the window in the Dean's Cloister at Windsor Castle. Another Windsor ghost story claims that Anne Boleyn has been seen running down a corridor, screaming, sometimes clutching her own head. Anne's ghost has also been seen at Hampton Court wearing a blue or black dress. Some accounts claim she is headless during these manifestations. Ratchford Hall in Essex is a manor house said to be where King Henry VIII first cast his eyes on the young Anne Boleyn. The Boleyns owned the home from 1515, a home claimed to be the setting of secret meetings between Henry, Henry and Anne. There were even rumors of a secret tunnel system beneath the home that King Henry used as his discreet escape route from the house. And perhaps the story that seems most difficult to believe is that of Anne Boleyn's headless specter arriving at Blicking Hall in Norfolk, clutching her severed head in a phantom carriage drawn by a headless coachman and four headless horses. On average, the carriage and horses disappear, leaving Anne to roam the corridors and grounds until sunrise. This manifestation is said to occur each year on the anniversary of her execution, May 19th. So, not sure how real that one is. Historian Haley Nolan says, quote, even if people try and say the Tudor period was a different time, no, it wasn't. It was always trying to discredit the victim when actually we need to be defending the victim. That's why we can't dismiss the romantic romanticization of Anne's story. It filters down and has an effect, end quote. No part of Anne's story makes that clearer than the end. No one suspects there is much more to the story than adultery, a contentious issue about which historians have disagreed for decades. Many historians suspect that the charges against Anne were, at the very least, exaggerated and, at the worst, wholly fabricated by Thomas Cromwell. Nolan argues that the Queen's lack of privacy and her deeply held religious beliefs would have made it very difficult for her to be unfaithful at all, much less with multiple men. Two months before her execution, Anne was involved in passing nationwide legislation tilted, er, tilted, titled the Poor Law, which stated that local officials should find work for the unemployed. The law also entailed creating a new governing council that rivaled the one headed up by Cromwell. 
Quote, suddenly, we have a much more devastating reason as to why Cromwell would be immensely threatened by the Queen, says Nolan. She wasn't a ruthless bully or seductress. She was actually a working politician who died for pushing this radical anti-poverty law through Parliament, end quote. The traditional historical interpretations of Anne Boleyn had relied on sources that obscured that part of the, her story. For example, Nolan says, the Spanish ambassador Chapuis is a source of a lot of contemporary writing about her, but he was a fervent supporter of Catherine of Aragon. Even beyond Chapuis, the people who kept the records in the late 1500s and the people who interpreted them in the centuries that followed tended to be overwhelmingly male. To Nolan, they brought the perspective that women can only achieve power by trickery. She also argues correcting Anne's story has broader implications for the way women's stories are told. Quote, we send out a dangerous message to the world when we tell readers and viewers that women only want power for selfish and frivolous reasons. When we tell readers that Anne was killed because she had a string of torrid affairs, it applies that women deserve their downfall, end quote, no one says. Her story is more relevant now than ever before because she was a politician who was taken down. This is still happening, and this is why we need to learn what really happened in order to make sure that history never repeats itself ever again. So that last part gets a little feministy sounding, but I think that it's true that the adultery uh, accusations were made up just so that Henry could get what he wanted. I don't think that it was just about Anne. It, it was also about Henry and what Henry wanted. And he wanted Jane Seymour. He didn't want Anne anymore because she couldn't give him what he wanted. So he decided that he was going to throw her out with the trash. And he did what he could to make sure that that happened. So poo-poo on Henry. By the way, did you guys know that his coffin exploded uh, after he was buried? He was in like a concrete one. Um. I forget what episode it is, but they talk about it on obituary. It's hilarious. All the gases that built up in his sealed coffin from him decomposing made the top blow off. Hilarious. I feel like it's karmic justice. But anyway, that was Miss Anne Boleyn. Hey guys, I just wanted to pop in and say lately, I have been back on my workout routine and let me tell you, Liquid IV has been there for me before, during, and after my workout sessions. In just one stick, you get five essential vitamins and two times faster hydration than water alone. I've been using it before my workouts and I feel so much better during them. It's amazing. So you can use it first thing in the morning or before you work out like I do, or when you feel run down or how about after a long night out with friends? Everybody knows you're going to need it then. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone with three times the electrolytes. Electrolytes is what blankets crave of traditional sports drinks. John and I have used Liquid IV after long hot days outside with the kiddos and even after nights out with our friends. We love Liquid IV for how well it works and how fast we feel rehydrated. My favorite flavor is the strawberry lemonade and John loves the watermelon one. I also love that it's made with premium ingredients and it's non-GMO, free of gluten, dairy, and soy. And Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. You can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code CAMP, that's C-A-M-P, at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code CAMP, 
C-A-M-P, at liquidiv.com. Ready to shop better hydration? Use my special link, which is zen.ai.champagneandmurderplease, to save 20% off anything you order. And stay hydrated, y'all. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Champagne and Murder, please. We really do appreciate you guys. If you guys would do us a favor and rate, subscribe, and review, that that would be wonderful. We would really appreciate that. It helps with the algorithm. Don't ask me how. I just know that it does. Um, I hope you guys have a great weekend. Enjoy your Labor Day. Make sure you're safe. Watch out for other people. And, and just have fun. And I will talk to you guys next week where I will have a couple stories for you because they're a little bit shorter. Um, And then we'll dive back in, I think, the week after into more Ghosts from the Tower. So enjoy your weekend. I will talk to you next week. And remember, stay safe and don't take candy from strangers. Goodbye.